The singing of the doxology by the PCC student body begins Pensacola Christian College Chapel. At each chapel service, students have an opportunity to receive spiritual exhortation and enrichment during a time of music and meditation on God's Word. This podcast shares selected recent chapel messages from guest speakers, faculty, and staff. Welcome to the PCC Chapel Podcast. Good morning, everybody. We're going to go to Luke chapter 6, if you would. Luke chapter 6. Wow, I got extra time today. Awesome. You know, I'm an evangelist. I am used to having like 40 minutes to preach. So I, 23 minutes yesterday I ended up with, and I thought, all right, what am I, how am I going to edit this on the fly? So that was a work of God. God still works today, and it was, uh, it was great. If it came out coherent, that was the Lord, not me. All right, we're in Luke chapter 6, and I am grateful to be back with you. I had the opportunity when I uh, graduated here in 89 to work for the school for uh, several years. I was a college representative in the States. And then I only planned to be on staff for two years. Uh, my wife, Angela, and I met here. She was, she's younger than I am, so she's, uh, she was a sophomore, I think, and I had graduated, so I'm working for her, waiting for her to finish school, and I was asked if I might consider being a college representative to missionary schools around the world. So I had always wanted to travel the world. I thought, all right, I'm going to pray about that. That sounds like quite an opportunity. So I uh, prayed, Lord, do you want me to do this? And he gave me definitely green light to do it. Had the opportunity to travel to 61 Christian schools, missionary schools around the world. It was a period of, let's see, nine months that I traveled, 36 countries and territories during that time. Every continent except, uh, well, you could probably guess one of them. Where, where did I not get to? Antarctica, yeah. Penguins don't come to college. So uh, I didn't go to Antarctica, and I only touched down in Australia. I really can't say I spent any time in Australia, but. Five continents all over the world. It was really neat. So as I was traveling, sometimes you'd realize there are certain places that are safer than others. Have you ever thought about that? I woke up this morning, and I, my mom's house, uh, we haven't sold yet. It's about uh, seven minutes from here off of Vicksburg, over near Varsity Town Center, off Burgess Road. It's close. And I woke up this morning. I was pulling up the blinds in the trailer and thinking, oh, I see it's nice to live in a safe spot. But what if you didn't live in a safe spot? Some of you maybe don't live in a safe spot. thought about a missionary I talked to one time. He was from Australia. He said, you know, in Australia, we've got seven of the ten deadliest varieties of snake in the world. And he said uh, one day he saw a colleague of his, lived in a house, and they had a missionary, or they, they had a block wall around the missionary compound, if you will. And he said, this guy's out there with a shovel, and he's standing up on this pillar, and he's swiping the shovel at this snake. And the guy said, what are you doing? He said, I'm trying to kill the snake. He said, that is an Australian adder. If that adder bites you, you'll be dead within moments. There's no remedy. There's no time to get a remedy. I got thinking, you know, where, where is the most dangerous place on earth? When I was doing those international travels, I remember being in Africa and talked to a girl whose uh, dad worked in the oil industry, and they were Americans. They lived overseas there. And so she said, we live along a river, and one day she said there were some European people, they were floating on uh, inner tubes down the river behind us, and she said, I heard this woman say, hey, I think I'm stuck on a rock. And somebody came over to help her, and all of a sudden the rock came up and boom, chomped her in half. The rock was a hippo, the most dangerous animal in Africa. More people die at the mouths of hippos than any other animal in Africa. And she said, we watched this lady die right behind our house. I thought, man, maybe... Maybe that place in Africa is the most dangerous. 
Then I thought about, well, you know, about two weeks ago, there were earthquakes in Turkey and Syria, and that first quake, some 40,000 people died. My sister and her husband served the Lord in Southeast Asia. I remember one year, way back, there was an incident in, in Indonesia, uh, it was about 2011, I think, and an earthquake came through, caused a tsunami, oh, actually t- 2004, 280,000 people died. You think, where, where is the most dangerous place on earth? Well, I'm going to tell you this morning. It's right here. He said, here, PCC. We, we had a campus incident the other day, and everybody's fine. This is a safe place. No, I, I want to show you spiritually, this can be the most dangerous place on earth. Luke chapter 6, I want you to look with me at one of Jesus' parables, and I'll show you why I call it the most dangerous place on earth Verse 46, and I'll read down to the end of the chapter. It's only four verses. Why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? Whosoever cometh to me and heareth my sayings and doeth them, I'll show you to whom he's like. He's like a man which built a house and digged deep and laid the foundation on a rock. And when the flood arose, the stream beat vehemently upon that house and could not shake it, for it was founded upon a rock. But he that heareth and doeth not is like a man that without a foundation built a house upon the earth against which the stream to beat vehemently, and immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. So it's a parable of the wise man and the foolish man. You, some of you grew up in Sunday school. Do you remember singing the song, the wise man built his house upon the rock? The rains came down, the floods came up, and the house on the rock stood firm. But you might remember every junior high or junior boy's favorite line was the house on the sand. And you know why? Rains came down, floods came up, and the house on the sand went, and then they would just spray it everywhere. You know, all the the girls would be like, yeah, gross. But what is the house on the sand? I used to think, well, you know, the uh, the house represents, or the uh, the parable represents the churchgoer versus the non-churchgoer. You're driving to church on Sunday, and you look at all these people, and they're at the mall, or their kids are playing soccer, and you think, you guys should be in church, and you know, we're the people on the rock, we go to church, and you people are building your lives on nothing, and no, 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 that's not what it's talking about. Jesus is speaking to people who go to church, if you will. He's speaking to people who at that time were attending the synagogue. They heard the word of God, some obeyed it, and some dismissed it. And that's what we're going to delve in today. Look, you've just come through Bible conference, you get preaching all the time, you get Bible teaching and Bible classes, but the most dangerous place in the world is to hear what you're hearing, but be ambivalent to it, just be dismissive of it. And so let me break it down. We're going to look at three areas this morning. Number one is this, the contrast between the hearers. The contrast between the hearers. Now notice in 46, Jesus says, why why do you call me Lord and do not the things which I say? The word Lord, kurios, is the word for master, boss, the one who calls the shots. He said, why would you address me as Lord if you don't obey me? That's a misnomer if you're calling him Lord and you don't do what he says. So the contrast between the hearers, well, we'll start with this. Similarity is structural. Similarity. Let's start with similarity. You're looking at these guys, and they're both building a house. Now, what does the house represent? The house represents a life. Okay, maybe you've heard people say, oh, come on, man, get a life. We would assume if you're talking to them, they have a life, because if they don't have a life and you're talking to them, that would be really weird, okay? So what do you mean when you say to somebody, get a life? You're talking about a quality of life. 
And my dad was a general contractor. We moved from uh, New Jersey down here when I was a kid. I grew up in the town of Sewell, New Jersey, in Gloucester County. I went to Gloucester County Christian School. And then we moved down here in 1988 and bought the house that I was referring to a little while ago. My dad had been a builder up in New Jersey. And I, I remember when we would do projects, my dad would get a piece of property, clear the land. He did custom homes. And the first thing he had, excavators would come in to level the property. And then you have masons come in, and the masonry work would be done, and that's pouring the footers and putting up the cinder block foundation. And then framers would come in, and my dad subcontracted a lot of this stuff out. But I knew even as a, as a kid watching dad work, the first thing you do when you build a house is you, you put a foundation down. You know, some buildings have similarities. There are a few distinctions. Not every building would ever have a foundation. They should, you would figure, but I thought about this. What about a birdhouse? Or a doghouse. Maybe some of you did the family project where you built a doghouse in the backyard for your dog. And, you know, houses have a few things similar. Buildings have a few things. Whether it's an auditorium like this, or, you know, you go to Walmart, or you walk into Lowe's or Home Depot, or, you know, you, you build a birdhouse, you build a doghouse. Buildings have some similarities. So all buildings will have at least walls. They have a roof. And there's got to be some kind of opening, like even a birdhouse has a little window. There's got to be a door or an access point. Okay, so what does the building represent? The building represents the life that you're building. And some people are building a life intentionally. They're building a life based on the word of God. And others are just kind of going through life and they're reacting to whatever comes their way. Any of you ever built a treehouse when you were a kid? And of course, kids don't have any plans. They just start putting up wood. And so nailing up wood, I remember doing that when I was a kid, and we, we put up some wood, and we'd figure out where we're going to put the flat spot, and my dad, who was a general contractor, later built us a treehouse above our shed in the backyard, and I mean, the thing was incredible. It, it had a cedar shake roof, and it had wood siding, it had one straight up ladder to get in, had another angled stairway to get up. It's like a little house that my dad built us. Okay, one was built intentionally, one was built unintentionally. Some people are living their lives like that, just kind of going through life, reacting. You, you live by your emotions. I'll tell you what, you're going to be like the scripture talks about, tossed to and fro and carried about. So the similarities are structural, but you can't tell a lot about a building by just looking at the outside. Letter B here, the, found, the differences are foundational. Differences are foundational. You can't really tell a person's foundation of life just by observing them. You guys come to chapel, you dress nicely, you bring your Bible, we stand up, we sing. You know, if I look at you collectively, even if I start studying individually, I can't tell a whole lot about you just by your attendance in chapel or your being a student at a Christian college. That doesn't, that doesn't give me a whole lot. How do you find out about a person's foundation in life? I'll tell you when you really see it, when the storms come. And the storms are the trials in life. They're the difficulties. They're the turbulent times that come. Something awful happens. Your parents go through a divorce. Somebody you love dies of cancer. Man, you go through a, a tragedy. Some of you lost family during COVID. Some of you had parents that go off in military and don't come home. Or come home, but they're not the same. The trials of war. Let me, let me tell you something. Storms are the troubles that will strike your life, and they'll literally shake it to the core. So what's the foundation? It's interesting. Scripture talks about in verses 47 to 49, the man who builds his foundation intentionally, notice he receives the word 
In verse 49, the other rejects it. The first man nests upon the word like a bird building a nest. The other neglects it. The first one mentioned does what God's commanded. The other despises the commandment. That's the difference. As I, I've had so many thoughts running through my mind, given two days to speak to you, and what, what would I want to impart to you? I, I mean, I, I sat in chapel. I remember telling my parents, back then we had to call home on phones that were attached to the wall, and the cord would get stretched way down the hall because everybody wanted to talk in private. So we'd pull the cord down the, wall to, down the hall to put it in our room. We didn't have landlines in the room at the time. And I remember telling my parents, I would pay the money to go to this college just to get what I'm getting in chapel. God was really working in my life. I was being transformed. There's an intentionalness that must come where you say, okay, if God says it, that's it. I remember as a kid, I used to collect quotes and pin them up on the cork board that I had in my room, quotes that were inspirational or Bible truths. And one of the quotes said, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. And then I got thinking about it, well, you know what, whether or not I believe it, that settles, it's already settled, so God said it, that settles it. I had crossed out, I believe it. Well, then I looked at it, I thought, well, that doesn't look right, because that's like saying I don't believe it. So I reworded it, God said it, that settles it, and I believe it. you got to get to the place where you realize, if God says it, that's, that's it. He's the authority. Let me tell you, your faith is under attack today. Everything in society is leveled against biblical Christianity. Wokeism, I read a book this year, I'd, I'd recommend it to you, Erwin um, Lutzer wrote called We Will Not Be Silenced, and how wokeism, political correctness, um, cultural, cancel culture is just invading our churches, and, and we're, being, we're being cowered by it all, we're being, uh, we're being made timid by it all, we, we don't want to offend anybody. Let me tell you something, we're not the one bringing the fight to the culture, the culture's bringing the fight to us, but God said... He made all things. God said he made everything in six days. God said he made the male and female. You, you know the science is on our side. There are XX chromosomes and there are XY chromosomes. You don't have to be confused. You're either a male or you're a female. God declared that. That's not my opinion. I'm not just some bigoted Bible preacher. Do you know why I'm narrow in my views? Because the Bible is established authority. God said it. That's true. I believe it. Do you? So the one man builds his life on the foundation of, the other, uh, of God's word. The other's just tossed to and fro. So that's the contrast between the hearers. But now I want to get into number two. And this is somewhat of the meat of the message for us today. It's the condemnation of the heedless. Condemnation of the heedless. By the way, if you're spelling that, make sure you spell it right or you'll end up with the Ichabod Crane story. Remember the headless horseman? Heedless is H-E-E-D, not headless. But the condemnation of the heedless. Look at verse 49 again. He that heareth and doeth not is like a man that without a foundation built a house upon the earth against which the stream did beat vehemently, and immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. One of those opportunities I had in 1991, I went to the Pacific, uh, Pacific Rim Nations, and among other places, I was in Micronesia. And I remember being in um, Ponape with missionary Dalton Heath. He was serving with Worldwide New Testament Baptist Mission. And I had not met Brother Heath up to that point, but I was supposed to be at his house for uh, two and a half days. I ended up being there for five days because a typhoon came through, a Pacific hurricane. And you know, the, the hurricanes that have hit this state in the last few years, I remember going over to Mexico Beach, uh, Panama City area, after what was a Cat 5 came ashore there. That's 150 miles an hour. We were being hit with a 200 mile an hour typhoon. 
And I got to tell you, having spent enough time in Florida, I was a little apprehensive about this. And Brother Heath told me, no, we'll, we'll be fine, Rich. You'll, you'll be fine. He said, we have a cinder block house. We've got shutters that are built to withstand hurricane force. We've got a generator. So I remember spending the night with Brother Heath and his wife, and the winds were howling. You just hear the debris hitting the shutters all night long. Power went out, but we had a generator. And then I remember we got up the next morning, and Brother Heath said, I want to go take a ride around the island. We're good, but I want to check on my people. We rode down by the shoreline, and I remember I'd been there two days before with him, and there were these little thatched hut house uh, buildings that were built for fishing village. They were made out of like bamboo pole with banana thatch roof, and they had just been driven by piling into the sand. What, what do you think those look like after 200 mile an hour winds? Shifted to the side, roof ripped off, snapped in half. Utter devastation. And that was true of so many people across the island as we, as we went around that day. I want to tell you, the house built on solid block, the house built to withstand the storm, did fine. But the houses just kind of slapped up. Disaster. That's the picture the Lord's talking about. Now I want to compare some scripture with scripture, so keep your place in our text. Let's go over to James chapter 1. I call number 2 the condemnation of the heedless. And I want you to see there are three areas of danger and I'm going to take them consecutively or in the order that the, the scriptures give them here. Uh, James, actually I will back up in a minute. James chapter 1. I'm going to go from James and back up to Hebrews, so I'll give you that heads up. James chapter 1. Look at 22 through 25. If it, um, be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any be a hearer of the word, not a doer, he's like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass. For he beholdeth himself. And goeth his way, and straightway, right away, forgetteth what manner of man he was. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty, and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. Okay, so he's beholding his face in a glass. Now what does that mean? Is he, is he looking into a cup like this? And Hmm. No, of course, the glass here is like Alice in Wonderland. She went through a looking glass, which was what? A mirror, yeah. So he's looking in a mirror, and he sees himself. And, and what do you do when you look in a mirror? You know, if you wake up in the morning, and you've got crusty stuff in your eyes, and you're breathing dragon breath because you haven't brushed your teeth yet, and your hair is every which way. The mirror is saying, hey, get out a brush, get out a toothbrush, you know, clean up. And the mirror shows you what you need to change. That's what God's Word does. If you're a hearer but not a doer, it's like if you looked in the mirror and you said, ah, it's terrible, and you don't want to do anything about it, so you go to breakfast and your roommates say, hey, did you look in the mirror this morning? Oh, yeah, you did? Looking in the mirror doesn't just mean peeking at yourself in glass. The mirror shows you what needs to be addressed. That's true with God's Word, too. Did, did you find some areas where you were convicted during Bible conference, some areas where you said, i, I got to address these things? I need to see change. I hope you did. Every time I sat in Bible conference, God did something to change my heart. Every time I preach in revival meetings, I'm, I'm not just doing a Bible conference when I'm preaching in churches. I want to see people's lives changed by the Word of God. How about you? Look, you can come to this school and you can get an academic education. You can get your, bio, your head filled with Bible facts, but that's not going to change your life. It's heeding the Word. Interesting, the word deceiveth himself. It's the uh, Term paralegizomai, para, like parallel, legizomai, word logic comes from it. It means um, lined up beside what's logical. When my kids were 
young, uh, I wanted to teach them how to do parallel parking to get ready for their driver's test. Well, we live in Kansas City, Missouri. And Kansas City downtown can be pretty busy, but I decided I'll take my kids down at midnight. Kansas City's pretty much a ghost town at midnight. So I took them down at midnight to practice driving, and I'd have them figure out, you know, parking garages and getting through town. And, and we practiced parallel parking down there because, you, you know, you got to be prepared to pass your test. And you know what parallel parking is? That's when you're parked right alongside the curb. It's not the easiest thing. Sometimes we've got this idea. What's deception mean? You're right alongside what seems right. Hey, man, here, I go to church Sunday, Sunday night, Wednesday, I'm in chapel. You would think, like, yeah, I got it together, man. Just because you hear the Scripture doesn't mean you're submitted to the Scripture. And the danger that always impresses my heart when I'm talking to people, it's not enough just to know what God says. You've got to be one who heeds what God says. The first danger is self-deception. There was a guy when I was in college here, he was a golden-tongued orator. I'll just give his first name, but Dave was his name. And this guy, he he could put together three points in a poem in a five-minute student body message that was incredible. In fact, he, he conducted a tent meeting here in town when he was a senior, and I was a freshman. I went to hear him. Not a lot of people showed up because he was an unknown name, but he was known to me. And I and a few others went and heard this guy, what a preacher. Well, then I heard Dave, uh, right before he graduated, was not allowed to march in his graduation. And there had been some falling out between him and the school, and found out later it had to do with not paying his bill. And then there was an attitude issue, and I forget. And uh, later I heard he went home, and he ended up, turning his back on God. In fact, I'd heard he was going out and getting drunk with his unsaved brothers. And one day, I'm in college, uh, I'm, singing with a, I'm traveling with a college group. We, we called them ensembles at the time. You know, we have proclaimed teams now. So I was the preacher for a, for a proclaimed team. And we're in a church, and I look out, and there's Dave, the guy that I looked up to when I was in college. And I asked the pastor, is that Dave so-and-so? He said, oh, yeah. I said, I heard, da-da-da-da. He said, yeah, that's all true. I said, so what happened? He said, you should go talk to him. So I went and talked to him. I said, uh, Dave, it's Rich, how you doing? He's like, oh, hi, Rich. Real sheepish, you know, real mild-mannered. And I said, Dave, I always like to go to the person about things I've heard. And he said, well, probably not surprising what you've heard. Tell me what you've heard. And I told him, he said, yeah, it's all true. I said, really? He said, yeah, Rich, I came home, and I, was, I just got all out of sorts. I was bitter and just resentful and And he said, uh, I'll tell you how bad it got. He said, one day I'm sitting in a bar. And he said, I've grown my hair out. I've got a beard and and a bushy hair because I want to hide my identity. I don't want anybody to recognize me. And he said, in walks the pastor of the Christian school I'd gone to. And I looked up shocked, like, pastor, what are you doing here? You know what's the pastor doing in a bar? He said, Dave, I came to get you out of here. Come outside. I want to talk to you. You imagine if the pastor of the Christian school you went to walked into the bar where you're trying to hide? And he walks outside and he says, Dave, what's the deal? What are you doing? He said, well, I, Pastor, I, I don't know. He said, I'm just so far from God. He said, Dave, I want you to come back. Come, come to our church. Oh, Pastor, if I come, the walls will fall down. The roof will cave in. He said, Dave, I promise you, you won't be judged. We want to help you. I don't know, Pastor. Well, that week he did not show up. But the next week he showed up and he told me, hey, Rich, I showed up. Suit and tie, got my hair cut. I looked like my old PCC days, but I wouldn't, it didn't mean anything in my heart. I was just there because I knew I was a mess. He said, the pastor preached that morning. He said, I got to tell you, 
I was the first one down the aisle. He said, the pastor came down from the platform. He shook my hand and said, Dave, we're so glad you've come back to God. He said, Pastor, I haven't come back to God. He said, I've come to get saved. He said, what? Dave, you went to a Christian college. You majored in Bible. He said, Pastor, it was all a farce. And he told me, Rich, I never cracked open the Bible except to prepare a message to impress people. I didn't have a relationship with God. I was just doing what everybody expected me to do. And he said, and God broke my heart. I got saved that day after going four years through a Christian college with a Bible degree. I want to tell you, you can fool some of the people some of the time, but you can fool God none of the time. The worst deception of all is self-deception. Because if you think, oh, I'm all right, if you can't trust your own heart, who are you going to trust? Well, God has some advice for you. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart. Lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. Have you ever heard people say, oh, just trust your heart? Now, when it comes to romantic issues, oh, well, what's your heart telling you? Just trust your heart. I'm sorry, but that is the dumbest advice I've ever heard. God says your heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Don't trust your heart. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Man, I plead with you, if you don't know the Lord as Savior, don't play games. Don't be like my friend Dave, who didn't get saved till after he got out of this institution. Self-deception is one of the dangers. But then, go to, to Hebrews, and this, I was off, we'll back up here. Let, let's go where angels fear to go. Let's go Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews 6, verses 4 to 6. Commentaries skip this passage, okay? Some of them. Hebrews 6, verses 4 to 6. The first danger is self-deception, but I want you to see another dis, uh, danger here, and that's verse 4. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift, were made partakers of the Holy Ghost, have tasted the good word of God, the powers of the world to come, if they should fall away to renew them again to repentance, seeing they crucified to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. Okay, what is this speaking of? There are various interpretations, and let me just say, inspiration is perfect, interpretation is fallible. Okay? Inspiration is perfect. God gave the word by clear utterance of God, theonoustos, breathed out by God. So inspiration is perfect. But our interpretation is not always perfect. And we need to understand that. Just because you're right most of the time doesn't mean you're right all the time. Okay? So this is one of those passages, if you read commentaries, you'll have all kinds of interpretations. In fact, if we were to talk among the Bible faculty, there are probably various interpretations on this. That's okay. This is not one of those easy passages of Scripture. And I'm not saying if you don't see it the way I see it, you're wrong. But let me just tell you why I believe this is a picture of, B, salvation despised. Salvation despised. Now, some people believe that this passage teaches you can lose your salvation. I do not. I don't believe you can lose your salvation. Well, that's because you're a Baptist. Well, I am a Baptist, but that's not why I believe in eternal security. I believe in eternal security for a number of reasons. Um, foremost, John 5, 24, Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word, believeth on him that sent me, hath everlasting life, shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Okay, so you hear my word, you believe on him that sent me, the Father. He says you have, that's present tense, hath, right now, hath everlasting life. Hey, listen, if you had it and lost it, is it really everlasting? No. You have it. And then it also says he is passed from death unto life. That's perfect tense. That's something has happened that has ongoing ramifications. Okay, you guys up front can see. I'm, I'm wearing a, well, I guess on camera you can see. I'm wearing a piece of jewelry. What does that tell you about me? 
Yeah, I'm married. Now, on May 22nd, 1993, I made a vow to Angela Westberg. See, I married A.W. Tozer. My wife is Angela Westberg. Uh, Angela Westberg is my wife. We got married May 22nd, 1993. And when I made that vow, that meant I would never have an intimate romantic relationship with anybody else ever but her till death do us part. That was a one-time action with ongoing ramifications. That decision has affected my whole life. We have joint money account. We have three children together. uh, We have a ministry together. My whole life is wrapped up in a one-time decision that has had ongoing ramifications. February 12, 1977, I came to know Jesus Christ as my Savior. The most important day of my life, and I'll tell you what happened. From that point forward, I already passed from death to life. If you believe that Hebrews 6 teaches you lose your sal- you can lose your salvation, then it says this, it's impossible for them to be renewed again. So if you did believe in losing your salvation, based on that passage, you'd have to say once lost, you could never get it back again. Now, I don't believe it teaches that. Now, from this point, there are other orthodox views that uh, one common persuasion there's a lot of credibility to it, is that Hebrews is talking about entering to rest. It's talking about the uh, victorious Christian life, the, the sanctified life. I get that. But I'm of the persuasion he's talking about people that knew the gospel but blatantly rejected it. They were once enlightened. They, they've had their conscience convicted. They're starting to understand salvation. They've tasted of the heavenly gift, not a full course meal, but they've tasted. The Spirit of God has convicted them, and they blatantly reject it. And what happens? They're lost, and they'll never be saved. Now, when does that come? I I say that because if you read in the next couple of verses, he goes from third person to saying, but we're persuaded better things of you, and then he comes back to the believers that he's addressing. To know the gospel but blatantly reject it is a dangerous proposition. Had a kid in my Christian school. We we tried to talk to him about the Lord. He said, shut up. I'm going to hell. I don't care. I don't want to hear it. No, no shock to me that he ended up a drunk and a drug addict after we graduated from school. He heard the same truth I did, but he, he rejected it. Dangerous proposition. Go to 1 John for a minute, 1 John chapter 5. My junior year, we had a guy come to my high school, Craig. He'd been raised in a home where mom and dad were divorced. He, um, he lived with his mom. She was not saved, did what he wanted. Finally got tired of her rules, left New Jersey, moved down to Miami, living off the shores of Miami, doing drugs. Finally came to the end of himself like a prodigal son, called his dad back in New Jersey, said, Dad, I want to come back home. And his dad said, well, Craig, you can come home, but I'm going to put you in a Christian school. We're going to go to church. He said, oh, okay, Dad. So he came home. First time I saw him, looked like a defiant rebel. Next time I saw him, totally different countenance. Found out he had gotten saved. Came to our school on fire for God. He and I became very close friends. I'm a junior. He's a senior played basketball together, soccer, other sports, and uh, solid friends. Well, I came off to school here. He had gone off to uh, Baptist Bible College up in Clark Summit, Pennsylvania. And I heard that when he went to college, he got in with the wrong crowd. Did you all know that you can find the wrong crowd in any Christian college? They'll find you. And uh, he had gotten rebellious, and I didn't know this. He's a Bible major who'd gotten rebellious. Some bitterness toward his dad had crept in. And one weekend, Craig came home. And he and Dan, the guy I told you about that was my classmate, said, I'm going to hell, I don't care. They went out and they got drunk together. My friend Craig, who was my, my f- fellow ministerial student, a, a guy that wanted to serve God, and in a drunken state, Craig got up on the edge of a passenger or a uh, 
car bridge over a creek, and he dove in the creek. Hey, Dan, watch this. And the creek was only about a foot and a half deep. He snapped his neck and was paralyzed and drowned in a foot and a half of water. Look at 1 John 5, verse 16. If any man sees his brother sin, a sin which is not unto death, he shall ask and he shall give him life for them that sin not unto death. There is a sin unto death. I do not say he shall pray for it. What's the sin unto death? Well, let me ask you, what's the sin not unto death? The sin not unto death is anything you've committed because obviously you're still alive, right? It's not a particular sin. You do X, you're going to die. It's like the proverbial straw that broke the camel's back. The Lord's been convicting you. He's been reproving you. He may have chastened you, and you're not listening. And finally, he says, it's time to go home. I believe that's what happened to my friend Craig. That can happen here. Let's go back to our passage. i got two minutes. Let's go back to Luke chapter 6. I don't want to end on that note, but I, I just plead with you, please do not trifle with God's truth, gang. I'm not, I'm not preaching the message in a spirit of condemnation. I'm not preaching it to be a, a downer. I'm saying to you, you've been given so much. Please embrace the truth and do it. God's blessing comes to those who do it. Notice, finally, the comfort of the heedful. Number three, the comfort of the heedful. Verse 48 He's like a man, the one that does God's word, who dig deep, laid the foundation on a rock. When the flood arose, the stream beat vehemently upon that house and could not shake it, for it was founded upon a rock. I wrote down A, accept grace in place of bitterness. Accept grace in place of bitterness. Hebrews 12, 15 tells us, looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness spring up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. Look, when you go through trials, you'll either come out better or you'll come out bitter. You never come out the same. Going through trials, you either come out better or you come out bitter, but you never stay the same except grace in place of bitterness. B, become grounded in truth instead of battered about. Psalm 1 talks about the tree planted by the rivers of water. Ephesians 4.14 talks about not being tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine. So become grounded in truth instead of battered about. And finally, see the goodness of God in the midst of bad circumstances. See the goodness of God in the midst of bad circumstances. I've got a lot of scripture on the goodness of God, but with only a minute left, I don't want you to walk out without this before you go. You've got to settle by faith the fact that God is good, for it will not be your feeling when the ferocity of the storm strikes. Settle by faith the fact that God is good. It will not be your feeling when the ferocity of the storm strikes. You've been listening to a message from Pensacola Christian College Chapel. You're welcome to pass this sermon along to others. Please don't charge for it or alter it without written permission from Pensacola Christian College. For additional information about PCC, visit us online at pcci.edu. Pensacola Christian College, empowering Christian leaders to influence the world for Christ.